Matthew chapter 5. We'll get to the passages in just a few moments because I want to start with uh, acknowledging the buzz that I've heard from many of you. You're just so excited that the new season of Dancing with the Stars has started. (laughs) And you can tell by looking at me that I'm a big dancing fan. (laughs) You can talk to my wife about that. But uh, I have seen a few of those episodes of Dancing with the Stars. Uh, You know what they've tried to do to make it appealing to more than just like five people across America? Uh, They've pulled in some professional athletes. Uh, you know, Emmett Smith won it and uh, a couple of years ago, I think, and Jerry Rice was on it. He might have won it too. I don't know. But I like the fact that they're pulling in NFL stars on Dancing with the Stars. I can't wait till they do the flip-flop and they start putting those professional dancers out on the football field with the NFL guys. That might be worth I'd pay money to see that, I promise you. Uh, I, I want to take the Dancing with the Stars thing and draw some connections for us. Because I think it provides something of a, of a uh, metaphor, I guess, of the Christian life and particularly a life of discipleship. What I've noticed through the years, and I notice this not just by looking at other people, but by examining myself and how I tend to, to act and live as a Christian, I, I seem to notice that... Uh, Many of us live the Christian life along the lines of uh, line dancing. Does that communicate for you? Now, y'all are looking at me like, well, we're Baptists. We don't know what dancing is. You bunch of liars. I know better. You know what line dancing is? Of course. Thank you. At least somebody's honest out there. Okay. You, the, the old craze, and I don't know if maybe it's still a craze. I don't know. I don't. I just don't know. I don't have. I have no rhythm, and uh, so it's difficult for me to participate in the dancing thing a whole lot. But the line dancing thing I saw on TV and other places, and uh, my understanding. What's, let me take it off a of line dancing. Let's put it on Zumba because some of y'all are Zumba fanatics, aren't you? And if you're not, then you have a chance to be. Our church on Tuesdays and Thursdays has a Zumba thing in the evenings. For ladies, you're welcome to come. I promise you I'll not be there, all right? Um, But take Zumba as an example. Here's the basic thing. You get one person who supposedly knows what they're doing, and they're the director, the leader. They're out there in front, and then everybody else kind of spreads out over the dance floor, and they try to keep up with the leader, and so the leader's up there doing, and I won't do it up here, but they up there doing their Zumba thing, and everybody else is trying to keep up with them and trying to mimic the moves or even anticipate the moves so that they can all do it as one. The deal, though, is, and this is where I get the correlation with how many Christians do discipleship, being Christ followers. The picture is that there's one person who is detached from you, And they're telling you these are the rules, these are the steps, this is the sequence. And then Christians spread across the globe are trying to keep up. And so we get that in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. That's where we're studying now. Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, as we go through that, we're going to find that Jesus, according to the analogy of the Zumba dance or the line dance, Jesus is the leader and he says, okay, here's one of the moves for you. Uh, You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, and I'm going to condense it down, that 
if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty of murder. And so each of us in our own little Zumba cone out there hear the director say, here's the step, okay, I can't be angry with somebody. And then we go into a humanistic Christianity and we begin trying in our own little dance to follow Jesus. (laughs) But we have a hard time keeping up. Don't you? And another one, Jesus says, here's the next move for you. Uh, When it comes to prayer, And then he gives us what many people call the Lord's Prayer. You're going to hear me when we get to that. I'm going to argue that it's better called the model prayer because Jesus says when you pray, pray along these lines. And he goes through our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, we just work through the whole thing. And so we hear that and historically what the church has done is taken that prayer and we just mimic it. And we just pray it right back to him. Meanwhile, our heads are at softball games and work issues and what I'm going to have for supper. And we mimic the words. And in doing so, our Zumba line dance teacher, Jesus, stands out there and we just try to keep up doing our own thing. And it's a segregated kind of discipleship. Dancing with the Stars has given me, at least, a fresh take on being a Christ follower. I flash from the line dance Zumba thing to the waltz. Now, I don't know that much about dancing, okay? But what I see when I watch Dancing with the Stars is I see this professional dancer who takes this dancing rookie... Now, whether it's a movie star or a TV star or a music person or a professional athlete, doesn't matter. For the most part, what they do is they pull in these people who have no clue about dancing. I would be a good contestant on that because I have no clue about dancing. But you see, they pull in this professional and they stick these two um, really unlikely people together. And the professional then says to this newcomer... We're going to do the waltz. And in order for, the, to, for us to do that, we have to be connected. And what you have to do is follow my lead. So now, as opposed to somebody standing out there saying, here are the component steps, do this. Now they're connected and the leader, the professional, is saying, work with me through this. And we're going to go to this step. And then from this step, we go to that step. And from that step, we go to the next step. But we do it in a connected fashion. What a great picture of what being a Christ follower really is. As we connected with Jesus Christ himself, instead of him barking orders from a distance, he takes us in his arms and he works us through the process. You see the difference between the two? On one hand, you have a humanistic Christianity. A Christianity that says, okay, Jesus, I'll trust you for my salvation, but then I'm going to step away from that and I'll try to keep up with all the other stuff. And instead of that, now Jesus says, come to me and let's do this together. Now, there's the picture. But it's something that we seem to have lost through the centuries, or at least partially so. We come to the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. What we really find here is Jesus saying, step in and let's do this. Because the very first one says, 
You can't do it on your own. So the message today we've called the dance. And I hope that it will begin to work its way into your thinking as we go through this Sermon on the Mount and particularly these Beatitudes as we learn what it means to be a Christ follower, not just from a distance trying to keep up, but in step with him as he leads us through this thing called life. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then the one for the day, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I could continue reading, but I'm going to stop there. Actually, last week I did something different in this service than I did in the early service. And so the early service got verse three, uh, 4, and they didn't, or y'all didn't get that last week. So I'm going to try to do two Beatitudes and pull them together very quickly this morning. So let's look at the second one, actually. The first one we talked about two weeks ago, the poor in spirit. It is an acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. The entry point into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven, by necessity says, I can't do this by myself, poor in spirit. The second one builds off of that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In February of 2002, I found myself in Washington, D.C. I had gone there for a conference, and it was, actually I went a day early so that I could do a little bit of sightseeing. I'd never been to Washington, D.C., and uh, so I decided to go early. It never dawned on me living down in Edinburgh, Texas, that February in Washington, D.C. might be cold. So I was going to do the tourist thing in the middle of February. And I was by myself, and so I set aside a day to do that. And sure enough, on this particular day, it was double cold. And I got on one of those tour buses, and I made my way around. And one of the places, of course, is only one day, so I had to really pick and choose what I was going to do. And on that one day, I wanted to be sure and get to the Arlington National Cemetery. And so they took us up there, and... Instead of going with the group, I just decided to just walk around for a while. And so I walked way up into different parts of that cemetery. If you've never been there, it's worth spending some time to see and be reminded of the cost of freedom that we enjoy. And I was deeply moved. Now remember, this is February of 2002. It was just a handful of months after the events of 9-11. And I worked my way up onto the side of one of those portions of the hill there And I looked out across over the top and I could see the Pentagon and the scar left from that plane that had gone into the Pentagon. And they were in the process of rebuilding it and there were some of those cranes, construction cranes that were there. And and so as I looked out at America's most recent war and the beginnings of it at the Pentagon, but in order to see that I had to look across all of these crosses there that reminded me of decades, centuries really, of war and the high price that war exacts. And as I looked out across that, it dawned on me that it's really easy to forget that stuff. To get so wrapped up in the daily living that we have that we fail to acknowledge what we see. What I was seeing was this vivid reminder 
of the high price of freedom. And it caused me to step back into my Christian life and consider how much I just kind of lived off the top and over the surface of those fundamental truths that we hold, the primary of which is that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sin and yours. What do you see when you look around? Just think back through the events of this week. How many news stories did you either read or see on TV this week that involved people dying? What we would call untimely deaths. How many things are you aware of as you look around of the way our world, the earth itself, is groaning in New Testament terminology. Earthquakes, disease. I was confronted again this week and especially over the last several weeks of disease and particularly I'm thinking of Alzheimer's. A couple of weeks ago I went down to Edinburgh to bury the father of a friend of mine whose life over the last five years was incredibly tragic. What do you see when you see that kind of stuff? I could set a glass of water up here and fill it halfway full of water. And some of you, the ones who are optimists, would look at that glass of water and what would you say? It's half full. And the pessimists out there would say, who stole half of my water? The realist would say, So you never think about the realist part, do you? The realist would say, there's a glass with water. The pragmatist would say, I'm thirsty, I could use a drink. Every one of us has this built-in way of seeing the world around us, and the way we see it impacts the response that we have to it. So I'm asking you again, how do you see What's going on around you? Take your own life. Let's zero it in and bring it home to you. That own, your own personal struggle with sin. How do you see that? We have become very adept, very, very good at divorcing ourselves from responsibility when it comes to sin. Sometimes we pass it off to somebody else and we say, well, you know, actually the reason I'm the way I am is because of that. I, I used to have a friend, I, I, still a friend actually, uh, this person's redheaded, okay? Doesn't live here, so if you're redheaded, you're off the hook, okay? Person's redheaded and they can cut you to pieces with their tongue. You know somebody like that? Just like that, triggered off, mad, and wear you out with their tongue. One time this person said to me, well, you know, the reason it's like that, I, you know I'm red-headed. Okay, I'm fat, but that doesn't make me smart. Well, I'm red-headed because I'm Irish. And you know, we Irish people, we have a temper. Okay, so in other words, what we hear with that is, I'm not responsible. It's all in my genes. It's my hair color that makes me sin. Now that's kind of far-fetched for us until... You start thinking about how it is that you deal and process your own sin. We're really good at distancing ourselves from responsibility. And so it's really not my fault. You know, we, we learn at an early age to deflect responsibility. 
Well, you know, yeah, sure. I was with them when the robbery occurred, but, you know, I was actually just, you know, it wasn't really my idea. I was watching a news documentary last night, and a guy lost his life. I mean, the death penalty because he happened to be with some guys who killed somebody. He didn't pull the trigger, but he still got the death penalty because he was with them. Does that make him not guilty? According to law, no, makes him guilty. But we have this way of saying, I'm not really that responsible. In this dance of being a follower of Christ, Jesus starts off in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize that they are bankrupt, that they have nothing in and of themselves to earn favor with God. The next beatitude, the one that follows hard on the heels of that one, tells us the appropriate response to seeing that about ourselves. When I find myself overwhelmed with my own sin, when I finally get honest enough to say, okay, God, I am guilty, How should I respond to that? Blessed are those who mourn. The word mourn there, nothing special about it. It means the response of grief due to a loss. Or in this case, the Greek word there also includes a nuance that it is a response of grief not only to our own loss of innocence in this case, but also it is a response, the appropriate response that we have when we see the world around us living below God's standard. Back to the first beatitude. The poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, what does it say? The promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the entry point. But you see, when you begin to recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven and live in the benefits of the kingdom of heaven, every time you cross the line into sin, it ought to cause a response in us. But you see, we are so calloused that we don't really have to do that anymore. Yeah, well, you know, okay, that was just a little white lie. You know what God calls a little white lie? Sin. And so when we find ourselves in that condition, the appropriate response, what we need to see, should move us to mourning, to grief. In other words, it ought to break our hearts when we break God's heart. When I was in high school... I was living a life that the devil was very proud of. I turned my back on all that my parents had raised me to believe. I turned my back on God. I turned my back on teachings of Scripture. I was living for myself and was very wicked, is the best way to say it. And in one particular instance, my mom figured out some things that was going on. I'm pretty sure she figured out a long time before I thought she did. Uh, but on this particular day, it was a dark, dark day in my life. Because mom stopped me in the hall of the house and she said, Hey, uh, is such and such true? Now, the deflecting uh, part of me said, Well, no. You know what God calls that? A lie. Sin. Because it was true. She said, Is this true? I said, No, it's not. She said, Okay, well, let's check it out. Well, she started checking it out and I knew I was busted. And I said, Okay, it's true. And I'm sorry. You know what my mom said to me? Mark, are you sorry you did it or are you sorry you got caught? 
Well, I'm definitely sorry I got caught. I'm not too sure about being sorry that I did it, but I'm definitely sorry that I got caught. A sense of mourning. How do you respond to those things about you that you know break God's heart? A sense of mourning. That's what we get with the condition here. The second part of this, though, as I've already said, reaches beyond us and it reaches out to those around us, to the condition around us. Do you have a sensitivity to the people around you in life who are really struggling under the curse of sin? I guess it's easy for us to get bubble viewpoints. We just see our bubble and we walk through life with our little group and what's around us. And meanwhile, somebody right next door, right across the street, or in the car next to us, or in the cubicle next to us at work, are living lives of hell on earth in the truest sense of the words. How do you see those things? One of the things that is true of us, according to what Jesus says, congratulations to the one who sees and has a response of grief and mourning. To those who are around us, who are living below God's life. I think for us as a church, and for me as a Christian, for you as a Christian, part of this dance where Jesus pulls us to himself and he says, let's do this together. One of the things that that does for us is it moves our perspective away from self. Through his eyes, we begin to see creation at large. And it ought to break our hearts when we or those around us choose to live below God's Design. Now, the promise attached to this, the second half of the verse, helps us. Congratulations to the one who mourns. That doesn't seem to make sense, but the congratulations is because of the promise. It's when we begin to see that that we are comforted, it says. The word there is an interesting word. It really literally means to be called alongside. Yesterday I was watching football, and I noticed most of the teams represented in this church, and I'm talking about the fans that are here, most of them won. That little school, that struggling school in College Station had some trouble yesterday, I know, but uh, the rest of us, the good schools, won. And uh, I'm just kidding about that. Some of them are not good schools either. Baylor won, though. Uh, So uh, I noticed in one of the games that I was watching yesterday, this guy got hurt, his lineman got hurt. I think it was an A&M game. And so one of his buddies and some of the trainers went over and they picked him up and they put his arms around their shoulders and they walked him off the field. That is exactly the picture of this word, comforted. To be called alongside. It is actually the very word that we get one of the New Testament names for the Holy Spirit, the called alongside one. And the picture is that God says when we have this response to sin around us and we see what's going wrong and we are mourning over that, it grieves us to see creation that lives below God's standard. God himself steps into the mix. This is not Bactine on some scratch. This is not aloe vera spread on some kind of a burn. This is God himself who steps into the mix and he picks us up and he pulls us to himself. And the dance says, man, this is better with God than it is without. The truest level of comfort. But you see, we don't get that when we're doing our line dance, Zumba approach to to being a Christ follower. And we're out there doing our thing and we're trying to follow God's lead. And we just feel frustrated and alone. And he all the time is saying, come to me. 
and let's do this together. You want to see sin correctly? You want to have a heart that sees and eyes that see those people around you in their brokenness? Draw close to God and you'll see through His eyes. That leads us to the next one. And I know that I'm pretty much out of time here, so I'm going to make this extremely quick. Blessed are the meek. In our world, we equate meekness with weakness. That's not the case in the biblical use of the term, but we say it's weakness. J. Upton Dixon started a, well, he he wrote a book actually called Cower Power. What he's doing is lifting up these people who are timid, okay? He started a group known as doormats. Each of those letters in doormat stands for this, dependent organization of really meek and timid souls. Their motto was, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. They chose as their symbol that they are recognized by is a yellow traffic light. It's just to be real cautious through life. And they call that meekness. The Greek terminology here in the ancient world used the word meek not as weakness, but actually just the opposite. It was strength under control. We might say meek as a mouse. They would have said meek as a lion. Doesn't communicate for us. Picture is strength that has been tamed. Picture the Arabian horses of centuries as they've been trained for desert warfare. Among other things, their trainers would take these horses, train them to whistles, so when they would give a whistle command, the horse would respond in one way or another. At the end of the training process for these desert Arabian horses, war horses, is a trainer would take them and deprive them of water for an extended period of time. And then when the day was right, they would release them to go to the water. And as the horse got right up to the water, the trainer would blow his whistle. If the horse stopped and came back to him, he was ready for service. If he stopped and got a drink, they told the trainer that he just wasn't quite ready for what would be required of him in battle. That's a picture of this word, strength under control. Jesus says, congratulations to the one who has been tamed and yet is still strong. I think he's referring here to that part of us that is control. The essence of sin, that very thing that sets us at odds with God, that part of us that says, I'll be God, not you, not today. The problem with that mentality is that We can never be God. Only God can be God. He's seen to it that that's true. And yet we still have this mentality somehow that says, I'll be God. If you take the dance analogy, it's the part that says, okay, I'll lead now. And God says, no. And so that part of us has to be tamed. We are control mechanisms. You know where I see this a lot? I see it a lot in driving. Now, I've talked to you a little bit about driving stuff already. Let me tell you this ongoing experiment that I have, informal research that I'm conducting. If you go down 69 here, I don't want to know if you're one of the ones who drives on 69 on a regular basis, okay, based on what I'm about to tell you. If you go down 69, what is the road that cuts over to Sour Lake? 
421, right? All right. You know, on 69 going south at 421, uh, it's two lanes plus a turning lane, right? But the right-hand lane, if you're going to continue south, what does the right-hand lane have written on it before you even get to the light? Right lane closes ahead or something like that. Now, unless you're driving that road for the first time ever, you know that you're going to have to merge into one single line, right? You know what I've been watching? I've been watching how many people get up to that light and there's a line in the one that continues, so they whip over into the right-hand lane. What are they planning to do? They're going to cut in, right? I would submit to you that's a control thing. I don't want to wait an extra three seconds for all these other cars to get through. As a matter of fact, my schedule is much more important than your schedule. So I'm going to jump three cars by getting up here and then I'm going to gun it and I'm going to get in front of everybody. I watched one yesterday who made space where there was no space. I wouldn't try that with just anybody. I had a friend in Fort Worth. He used to drive a beat-up jalopy. And he, I mean, it was, you could see through the back floorboard into the, onto the highways. And when we got to Fort Worth, he said, I'm going to show you what I call my close my eyes and merge. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I find a car that's newer than mine and I just go for it. I'm going to cut in. He said, they stop every time for me. You know what that is? Control. Used to do this with my dad. (laughs) See, the road trammels have a unique gift for order and cleanliness. My wife's laughing. Now, you come to my office most of the time. My desk is relatively neat and that kind of thing. My dad was like that to the nth degree. And so my mom and I, actually she used to do it and then she kind of trained me to do it. We'd go in there and move stuff around on his desk while we were sitting talking to him. And it would distract him because something got moved. And so he'd reach it and he'd put it right back where it was. And so just in the middle of a conversation we'd be talking. I'd be in staff meeting I'd spread papers all over his desk. And I'd see him, he'd be distracted, he'd be looking at the mess I made on his desk. You know what that is? Control. OCD, that's right. It's control, and all of us are into control. And if that doesn't get tamed, you'll not be a good dance partner. Because only Jesus Christ will lead. He's not going to let you lead. Oh, he'll let you do the Zumba line dance thing. If that's what you insist on doing, he'll let you stand out there and work yourself into a religious fervor and be miserable and alone in the process. But you want real joy? You want a real benefit of what it means to be a Christ follower? Inherit the earth? Follow. Surrender and follow. Let's pray. Bow your heads, if you will. Eyes closed, heads bowed. Just a couple of quick questions for you. Is it possible that you're like me and you spend more time trying to lead than you do following Christ? If that's you, And with all the love that I can pull together, I just want to say to you, you're going to wear yourself out trying to do that. 
We have entire religions and denominations that are built on doing enough good stuff to somehow please God. You haven't found that, nor will you find that anywhere in what Jesus is saying it means to be a Christ follower. You can't do enough to please God. All you can do is surrender. Poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. I don't have what it takes to pull this off. What we find as we work through these Beatitudes is we ultimately keep going back to number one. Because with each of these other ones, we find ourselves falling on our face time and time again. And so we go back to number one and say, God, I tried to do it on my own. I can't do it. I need your help. I, I see things, but then I, 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 try, I just, some reason, I take it back. So if that's you today, and you find yourself living a very humanistic Christian life, let me invite you to make it right, to just let it go. Maybe that's a rededication for you. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to come back to Christ as best you know how and say, you know, I know that I've been saved for a long time, but God, I've been trying to do this on my own and I need your help. And I'm going to invite you today. To, you can do this by coming forward. You can come talk to me. You can come up here and pray. You can do it right there where you stand in just a few moments. But to just let it go, you and God, say, God, I'm tired of doing this on my own. I want to let you lead. It's very possible. Matter of fact, I'd say it's probable in a crowd like this that somebody here today has never given up control in the first place. Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for your sin so that you might have life, reaches across eternity to you today, and he says, I'll give you life. You just have to take it. And that means surrendering yourself, trusting him as your Savior you can't please him on your own. He's paid the price. And so it's just a matter of saying, okay, God, I need that life that is found only in Jesus Christ. And I know I have to surrender control to get it. And I invite you, if that's you today, to give your heart to Jesus Christ, to trust him for salvation. And when we start singing in a few moments, I invite you to just step out, make your way up. We'll talk about it, pray with you. Won't embarrass you or anything like that. But the most important decision any of us ever makes in life is what do we do with Jesus and the gift that he offers. Father, we thank you for the life that you've given us. We pray that you would use this time for your glory. Souls would be saved by your grace. Lives would be changed. We would surrender. We see where we've been trying to be in control. Give us the grace courage we need to let it go. We ask that you do your best.